Hello and welcome back to the Ethics in Financial Services podcast series brought to you by the Banking and Finance Oath. My name is Alex. I'm one of the former BFO Young Ambassadors and I'm joined today by Stephen Scott. Stephen is the founder and CEO of the US-based RegTech innovator, Starling. Starling is a behavioral analytics software provider which specializes in helping businesses to identify leading indicators of conduct risk and risk management failures through analysis of organizational communication patterns. Their tools position firms to evidence and ability to manage risks proactively before they cascade into crises, which is one attention from global bank regulators, including those here in Australia. Stephen has built his career on risk management and investigative intelligence and has led successful engagements in over 50 countries. He has lived in New York, Washington, London, Madrid, Frankfurt, and in Shanghai, where he built the China operations for Alvarez and Marcel, the restructuring firm that would go on to wind down Lehman Brothers after the GFC. Earlier in his career, Stephen served as lead international investigator for the US Senate during an inquiry into corruption in connection with the 1996 US presidential election. In the early 2000s, he led an investigation into the collapse of one of the largest banks in the Caribbean in the wake of a multi-billion dollar fraud scheme. He holds degrees from Cornell University, the London School of Economics, and a dual MBA degree from Columbia and the London Business School. Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Alex, thank you very much for having me. Thank you for that kind introduction. As I listen to you go through my, uh, my history, I, I suddenly find myself feeling really quite old. <laughs> oh, no worries at all. No worries at all. It's, uh, it's an impressive resume. So featuring things like lead international investigator into a U.S presidential election, heading up a restructuring firm in China, multiple degrees. I'm curious, what led you to, or what motivated you to start Starling? Yeah, well, thanks for that. So it, it very much so flows from, from precisely that history. You know, in, in my university years, I studied psychology and sociology, and then I went on and studied international relations, and it's relations, right? And, and the same is the case for sociological pursuits. And and then I went and did an MBA, and there I was focused on international trade flows. And so in all of that academic underpinning, there was a, an examination of how connections among people lead to outcomes. From there, I had moved into the career that you described. And, and during most of that experience, what really struck me was how you saw the same movie over and over again, regardless of where you were in the world. It's certainly true that there are cultural differences between people in different countries, and we may speak different languages and worship different gods and eat different foods. But the human organism is really a very consistent one. And the differences between us are truly at the margins. Human behavior is very, very consistent in most contexts. And what I became good at in the course of my career was spotting those patterns and that sort of led me to be able to look in the right place at the right time and talk to the right person and ask the right questions. And so I became, I became good at that. Several years ago, I, I thought, how would you bottle that skill set, make it scalable, and marry it up to large data sets and AI in order to try and become predictive around these behaviors rather than always looking at them in a forensic context, going back and asking who done it? How can we actually anticipate what may go bump in the night? And so that was sort of the, the, the flash of curiosity that, that initiated Starling. And I like the combination of taking the sociology background, mixing it with the business, some real experience, merging it then with new technologies. It is a very interesting 
potion that you sort of mixed together here with Starling. I'm interested to know what is your current perspective on, you know, how businesses, regulators, how are they approaching the topics that you just mentioned there? I guess the handling of misconduct risk in organizations. How are they going about that at the moment? Well, that's a great question. And I think we're in a period of some flux in that regard. Look, the traditional approach to managing conduct risks in organizations, to my mind, has sort of two buckets. It's human behavior we're concerned about. Human beings are people. And so that's an HR sort of concern. So it gets shunted over to HR. And the, and the toolbox in, in the CHRO's office is to use things like engagement surveys and 360 reviews of peers and online ethics training and town hall meetings to set some pious tone from the top. And, and when you ask the leaders of financial institutions how much they spend on that stuff, the answer is largish. But then you ask them, well, how much do you spend on surveillance and monitoring? And the answer is, it's, it's, it's an order of magnitude larger. And so to my mind, that seems almost a tacit admission that the HR toolbox is maybe good hygiene, maybe necessary, but certainly no one views it as sufficient. And so the most energy and, and money goes into surveillance and monitoring and compliance systems. And if you look at the, the hearings from the Hain Commission and the APRA review of CBA and the government's review of APRA, this approach has clearly not worked. And what happens is there'll be an event. Officials will step in and issue some sort of sanction or punitive fine and require customer remediation. And it costs the bank you know, billions of dollars in some cases. But that tends to be a little bit of a rounding error when you look at the, the revenues that these firms generate. And they've already sort of priced it in, right? They set aside reserves anticipating that they're going to have such costs and, and then get on with it. And so the industry sort of persists in this backward-looking approach rather than taking advantage of forward-looking capabilities. And it's a little ironic, right? Data technologies now permit us to become predictive around human behavior and to distill leading indicators of behavior from standard and non-sensitive data sets. And banks know this. They will spend billions of dollars on tools that anticipate market movements if it permits them some investment edge. And they'll spend hundreds of millions of dollars a year on marketing whiz-bang tools that promise to identify those consumers who are most likely to respond to targeted ads. So the banks are aware that these predictive technologies exist and they, and they use them in, in almost all areas of their, of their business but for the governance risk and compliance context. And I think that there's a real opportunity to change that, change that up. Definitely. It definitely sounds like there's a bit of an imbalance in the calculus that's going on at these organizations at the moment in understanding, putting the spending on, I guess, a proactive approach to managing this sort of risks as opposed to a reactive approach. I guess, given you mentioned the Hain Royal Commission here in Australia, there have been large fines stemming from that Royal Commission do you think these fines that banks are sort of receiving as a result of these misconduct risks really playing out to their you know, worst extent, are you seeing that banks are taking, and regulators as well, are you seeing that they're starting to change their tune a bit, starting to change their approach? Starting to is the way I'd phrase it. You know, in the last few years, most particularly, there's been a, sort of a, an increasing global awareness that if what we're trying to solve is a problem that, it, that is human behavior in nature, 
maybe we should look at behavioral science and, and maybe there are some things that we can learn there. And what behavioral science teaches us about this is that traditional management theory starts from some very faulty preconceptions of what drives organizational behavior. We look at individuals in this atomistic context, right? We'll do a psychological study and a personality survey to try to get some sense of what Alex is like and, and, and then how he should fit into this organization based on our study of Alex. And they'll look at organizations as almost mechanistic, sort of like a clockworks. And if we just put the right things in the right place, they should move at the right speed and the right outcomes should be achieved. And that man is a rational actor. And the best way to motivate people is to dangle a carrot and wield a stick. And they'll make rational decisions to seek gain and avoid pain. None of the data bears that out, or very little of it does. Maybe in the macro, there's some truth to that. And by macro, I mean at the level of an economy. But organizations are made up of collections of people who group together in teams. And those teams create for people in, in organizations that are able to retain their talent a sense of belonging. I, I, I work here because I like the people I work with. I like here because the, the, I work here because the work I do is meaningful to me. More and more so, we get our social fulfillment at work rather than at the bowling alley or at the local Rotary Club. I don't know, you may have something similar in Australia. Those sort of organizations, they don't really exist in the way they once did, and they don't play the same role that they once did. We, we find our connectedness at work. And the last thing that you want to have happen is that you're ostracized by your peers. And so what follows from that is, is what in the literature is referred to as normative compliance. Right? We go along to get along. We adopt the norms of our, of our trusted peers so that we continue to fit in. And if our trusted peers say, well, we open false accounts, uh, it doesn't matter, no one gets hurt, we can always shut them later, just you know, go along to get along. And, and, and you, Alex, feel that that's probably not the right thing to do, but you've got kids to feed and uh, a Porsche you want to buy, and so losing your job is maybe not a real option for you. And what the data shows and what my experience was during the investigative work that I did over, over a couple of decades is that people capitulate. And so human behavior is not so much an individualistic event, it's a social event. And unless we inquire into the social dynamics within an organization, we sort of miss the trick. Yeah, I think that's definitely a good point to make. What would you say to people who might reply to that by saying, well, we understand that, yes, that is how it works. Behavior drives actions. But as a business, how do we really track that? How do we try to measure that? What would you say to those people? Yeah, and look, that's, I think, the biggest problem that, that holds the industry in its current state of inertia. There's a lot of belief that there's a toxic culture in the banking sector and that the financial services world sort of attracts greedy characters to it. And there have been some studies that, that indicate that there may be some truth to, to some of that view. I'm not sure I really believe that. I think people do what they think they need to do in order to fit in. And if you take an at-risk youth from the inner city who gets caught selling drugs on a street corner and put him in prison for a couple of years, a couple of years later, when you revisit that kid, you'll have a worse kid. Whereas if you put him in the Marine Corps, two years later, you'll have a lovely young man who's helping little old ladies to cross the street with their groceries, right? So it's not the apple that is the bad apple that, that, that poisons the barrel. It's the barrel. And when we, when we talk about that, we get head nodding. But then the, the sort of reaction from regulators as well as from folks in, in leadership in the industry is, I'm not really sure how to operationalize that. I mean, that all sounds great, but 
how do I do it? And by the way, how do I do it at scale? Jamie Dimon, I think it was, who was asked about some sort of misconduct event that had occurred at JP Morgan. And he said something to the effect of, look, we have 270,000 employees. If we were a city, we'd have a jail. And that sort of makes intuitive sense, right? You know, some people are going to do some bad things, sort of is what it is. We accept it as a cost of doing business that will pay fines for this stuff when it happens. Uh, we use the HR toolkit and the compliance toolkit to try and anticipate some of this stuff to some degree. But human nature is very fluffy. And I don't know what to do about that. And I just don't buy that. I think that's, to my mind, intellectually lazy. And you know, part of what you ask what we try to do about it, A, we've built tools that allow us to, to, to crack this nut in a different way. And I think that's what's most important. But a big part of my job is to be the evangelist for a new way of thinking about this. And what we've argued to people is, look, the banks may have priced this in. The banks may have already made their minds up and, and set their budgets such that expenditures for these punitive fines and remediation costs, et cetera, you know, they're, they're, that's already built in. It's the shareholder's money anyway. But there are negative externalities from that, right? There's a decay of trust in the industry broadly, and society carries that cost. And so who safeguards society's interests? And I think that's why we see things like the Hain Commission in Australia we have increasing levels of regulatory energy, central bank energy, international standard setters, looking at this and saying, we can't let this stand. I'll close with this one thought. Um, Mark Carney, who at the time had been the governor of the Bank of England and chairman of the Financial Stability Board in, in Switzerland, he made a comment, I want to say it was 2017. He said, when I look at the amount of fines, and I think the figure was about 350 billion pounds sterling, when I look at the punitive fines in the banking sector in the aggregate, the, the amount of money that is being paid out by these banks is in and of itself a systemic factor. It's a systemic risk. That money, had it not been paid out in punitive fines, would have supported $5 trillion in lending to households and businesses. And that money is pulled from the economy. So again, there's a negative externality that society is meant to carry when it really should be the responsibility of the firms themselves, and it should be the responsibility of the regulators to make sure that the firms accept that. And I think we're seeing a lot of energy to try to change that up currently. Yeah, but it definitely seems like there is a, as you say, a bit of a wider, a wider game at play here, where there, there is almost, I would say, I guess, an ethical obligation for the banks to think about the ways that they manage misconduct risk to ensure that their actions are not having those negative externalities that you mentioned. You also mentioned that, you know, Starling has developed tools to help banks to track this sort of social dynamic within their firms. Would you mind talking a little bit more about how Starling's tools help your customers to actually do this? Sure. Although I'm tempted to, to come back to something that you just said about how, how bankers think about this. You raised ethics and coming from the BFO, I, that, that's a theme that we shouldn't um, ignore. I think that most people who go into financial institutions and, and industry generally are good and, and they look to do good things. They look to produce good outcomes. And the outcome that we've been told to produce in the business world is returns for investors. And if we are producing those returns, that's ethical. There's something, there's something good that flows from that. Now, that presumes that we're producing returns in legal means. And the banks would say, well, we certainly as an organization are working to produce returns 
through legal channels and, and, and socially approved manner. But sometimes things go wrong and that's just the way it is. There's, there's, there's no ability to anticipate that. So when it happens, we'll do the best we can. Now, if an airline were to say, uh, we are pretty sure our planes are safe because, uh, well, it hasn't fallen out of the sky today. That's probably not the standard that we let them get away with. We wouldn't let them put passengers and planes in the air unless they had some ability to evidence that those people were going to travel safely from point A to point B. And I don't know why the financial services sector should hold itself to a lower standard than that. Because people's lives are at stake. Certainly livelihoods are at stake. And nowhere has that been clearer than, than down under. So let me just make that point. Uh, and now to your question about how, how the tools work, uh, we can go down a deep rabbit hole. This is all about data and many-to-many relationships that are assessed through machine learning and, and uh, random forest tools and AI. And some of your listeners may find that interesting. I suspect many will just have their eyes sort of glaze over. The simplest way to think about the way our stuff works, and, and others like us, is that there's an ability to find correlations between information in data set A and information in data set B. And given those relationships, we can infer certain things. Not quite causality, but a close enough correlation that it's worth considering closely in terms of our decision making. I'll give you an example. If I were to ask you, hey, Alex, how's it going there in Australia? Here, here in the US, it's, uh, it's winter and, and you know, I'm wearing a coat and tell me about the weather there. Right? Polite conversation starts with the weather. And then if I were to ask you, can you tell me what's the barometric pressure, the wind speed, the humidity level, uh, et cetera? Uh, can you give me that information every day for the last five years? So let's say that's data set A. And then I ask you, well, for every day in the last five years, can you tell me what happened? We had a thunderstorm in the afternoon. We had a blizzard. We had a drought. And I can then ask a machine learning tool to find correlations between data set A and data set B. So that tomorrow when I ask you what's the temperature, the wind speed, the barometric pressure, the humidity, et cetera, you give me that information and I can say to you, well, that's interesting. Over the last five years, 87% of the times we've seen that constellation of, of, of data combinations, there have been late afternoon thunderstorms. Now, over to you, whether or not you want to ride your bike to work uh, or pack a brolly, right? But you now have information that you can act on. And we're effectively doing the same thing. We're saying, can you give us data set A, the communications, and we're talking about electronic communication, so it's principally email for most firms. We work only with the metadata layer, which is to say we're not touching the content, we're not reading the emails, we're not Big Brother. We're just looking at the sent, opened, not opened, calendar invite, accepted, rejected. And when you have enough of that data, these firms all do, more is different. In that data, given how copious it is, there are artifacts that reflect human behavior. And if I then said to you, now give me a list of the the people you had to fire for opening false accounts, and I compare data set one against data set two, I can say, that's interesting. When I see this communication pattern, that has correlated for certain people in engaging in this behavior that we're concerned about. And so tomorrow, if I see that same pattern again, that acts as a leading indicator that perhaps that behavior is still there and where it's to be found, among whom. And I'll make this this important point. People are, of course, innocent until they're proven guilty. We're not the precogs, right? This isn't minority report. We're not trying to tell you who's going to commit murder before they commit it. What we're looking at are behavioral propensities. 
Where is this behavior most likely to occur? And what that permits firms to do is to target their limited risk management resources in a way that's more timely, more efficient, more effective. And because this operates in real time, as we see changes in the, in the data patterns, you can course correct. You, you can put management interventions in place and we can show whether or not those interventions have driven the change that's desired and whether it's likely to continue in a desired direction or whether you have a problem that's lurking in the organization that requires closer attention. Is that helpful? It is definitely helpful. Uh, it's definitely a step from, I guess, a step up from psychometric testing, 360 degree feedback and, and that's those sort of tools. I'm interested, could you give an example of how your customers, how you've seen them act on this information? Like what sort of things they do in response to getting these new leading indicators in? How do they sort of work with that in practice? Well, I'm, I'm able to give you one specific example because it's been made public. So we did a proof of concept of this technology and we were fortunate enough to have the opportunity to do that with, with HSBC. And that's a firm that had had problems in the past around conduct issues that had led to enormous punitive fines. And in the wake of all that, they had a monitor imposed at the organization and there were various things that they had to pledge to do in order to remain on the right side of their regulators. And they invested billions of dollars in trying to put in place sort of the industry standard risk management framework which is called the three lines of defense. And at its simplest, people on the first line are people who are in customer-facing roles. Their, their job is to make money for the organization. And as a part of that job, you have to make sure that your team is making that money in ways that are legit. And then you've got people on the second line who have a, a sort of control function. They oversee the, the, the first line and they sort of wear two hats. We're here to help, uh, but we're also here to challenge and monitor and make sure things are happening the right way. And then in the audit department, you've got the third line of defense and there are audit resources that are spent sort of doing biopsies periodically across the organizational tissue to, to see if they, they find anything squirrely. The problem with that, in the case of a company like HSBC with hundreds of thousands of employees across 60, 70 countries, there's just a lot of people who are responsible for managing risk across the three lines. And however rich and robust your operational risk management framework may be, it's really only going to be as effective as the relationships among those people who are working together to try to manage these risks. So we argued, do you have a sense of that? Do you have a sense of who trusts whom and who communicates with whom and when and how? And do you have visibility into that to allow you to infer anything that you might find useful? We had the opportunity to work for their global head of operational risk. And he said, this is, this is interesting. I want to try this. And so the task that he set for us was, I'll give you the data sets that we talked about earlier. Uh, data set A is here's the communication data. Data set B is here, here's where we had risk management failures. And can you find correlations in that data? And we, we did. And then he said, All right, now let me give you some additional communications data, but not necessarily tell you what happened. Can you find things in there that suggest that we might have had a deteriorating risk management condition? And we did that with great accuracy. I'm very pleased that uh, this gentleman happened to take a sabbatical earlier this year and has joined our advisory team here at Starling because he really understands the challenges in the industry. And to wrap up, what he understands is that however well-intentioned, however well-resourced, the current approach is just not producing the desired outcomes. And doubling down on it will be doubling down on the outcomes that we've already seen. It's the definition of insanity. You keep doing the same thing and expect different results, right? It's, it's, it's not going to happen. That line is attributed to Einstein, who also said, he said something to the effect of intellectuals 
solve problems. Geniuses prevent them. And so we're trying to bring genius to the industry. So we're coming up on time. Are there any further parting thoughts that you'd like to leave us with? Well, I'd leave you with the thought that I think all this stuff is in flux at the moment. Regulators have twigged to the fact that behavioral science can actually be very valuable in the context of risk governance and supervision. And firms have become aware that doing more of the same, throwing consultants at it to produce shelfware, that's really not going to satisfy the concerns that are being raised by regulators and by stakeholders, institutional investors. I think in Australia, if you look at what happened recently with, with Rio Tinto and at AMP and Westpac and NAB, there's a, a certain level of public outrage, but there's also a certain level of just f- scandal fatigue. And so what will be interesting to see in the Australian context is what happens next? And obviously, there's been great attention after the Hain Commission on the role that ASIC and APRA and Austrac play in all of this. And, and, and I think that we're seeing a change sort of at a foundational level in the way people think about these problems. I don't think people have sought to adopt predictive capabilities because I think that the presumption is that it wasn't possible. Heretofore, that's true, but that's changed. Very true. Thanks, David. Well, thanks for your time with us today. I've learned a lot. I'm sure our listeners have learned a lot as well. So yeah, thank you very much. It's a real pleasure. Thanks for the important work that you do, Alex.